Hello, and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. My name is Brad Warner. I am the author of Hardcore Zen, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, Zen Wrapped in Karma, Dipped in Chocolate, Sex, Sin, and Zen, and a whole bunch of other books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. This podcast is supported by your donations, and if you would like to donate to the podcast, please go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main ways of making a living, and I appreciate your support. But as always, this podcast is offered for free, so you don't gotta pay if you don't wanna pay. All right, today's podcast was recorded sometime in the summer of the year 2012. Unfortunately, I did not write down the date, and I didn't even write down the name of the place. I know it was Phoenix, Arizona, but I don't know where in Phoenix, Arizona. But I've always liked this recording because it gets into some discussion about what is enlightenment and what does enlightenment mean and what do you do about enlightenment and so forth and so on. So I'm offering it to you because of that. And uh, maybe somebody out there who listens to this, if you were there and know when and where it was, I'd love to know. I'm calling this podcast The Grand Canyon and Enlightenment, and you'll figure out why once you start listening to it. But uh, let's listen to me sometime in the summer of 2012. It must have been hot there in Phoenix, Arizona. Here we go. I, when I was driving around uh, with my dad today, we, um, we just went to the mall. I had to do some stuff on my computer. And there was an Apple store there, so we went to the mall. But near, uh, right near this... Arrow, is it called Arrowhead, something like that, mall? Or, Arrowhead Mall. Yeah. Right, right near there is a place called the Zen Restaurant. I said, I said, <laughs> yeah. I said to my dad, oh, there's a Zen Restaurant. And then he said, oh, it's, it's closed, though. And I said, ah, oh, that's what makes it a Zen Restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's empty, yeah. Yeah, it's empty. <laughs> and you can get no food there. <laughs> it's a buffet, so you can get as much as you want. Oh. Is that? Well, a hot dog with everything. Hot dog with everything. Yeah, that's that's the old one. Well, good. I'm I'm glad to uh, to see you here. Um, I when I first accepted the assignment of, of talking here, I I think it, I don't know if it was you or Dan. I said this to you. Where's Dan? Um, that oh wait, no, that's not you. Uh, there, sorry. Um, that um, I'm better with the Q and A than with a with a talk. I feel like the point of of uh, talking in these kind of settings isn't isn't to convey information. Uh, it, it's more to, to get a kind of a discussion going. But I also am aware that people don't want to just talk. So I, I usually try to say things to warm up the crowd. But I always feel like uh, what I'm saying in the beginning is not as important as the discussion. But anyway, something has to be said. And it's it's always interesting because I don't know in any given situation what sort of a group I'm talking to. I don't know what sort of uh, level we're at. The, yesterday, uh, we're staying at a friend of my dad's daughter's house uh, in um, Peoria, Arizona. And not Peoria, Illinois. Because <coughs> that, be, that would be a long way. Um, and and so we were having dinner with her the first night, and she started asking me some questions about, you know, my dad said, oh, my son is a Buddhist monk. And she's like, 
so she started asking, "Well, what's it, what's it like if you if you go visit the Dalai Lama? You, do you get to, do you just uh, does he give you predictions about your future?" <laughs> and 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 it's fun it's funny to to us, but it made me realize that that you know there's there's this whole world of of people out there for whom Buddhism is just so mysterious they don't they don't have any any idea, you know. And I was trying to tell her, "Well, I don't think you can just go visit the, <laughs> the Dalai Lama." Um, and ask him questions, but you know, she didn't know that, and there's no real reason for her to know that because you know what does she care about uh, Buddhism? But she was curious, you know, and and I realized well if I'm talking to somebody like that about Buddhism, I really have to start off with the with the most basic stuff. But I'm always surprised though when I come uh, to speak with a group that that often the people that I would expect to know a lot about Buddhism um, don't. You know, I, I, have, I have a good friend out in L.A. who's been a uh, yoga person for, for years and, and um, very intelligent woman. And she, I, I was doing this thing where she was interviewing me for a, a website and we were just kind of chatting. And I said something, I don't remember what the question was, but I said, well, that, it's sort of like when Buddha left the palace. I said that, that sentence. And she went, what do you mean when Buddha left the palace? <laughs> you know, so she's been you know she's been studying, and I, maybe there's some people in here who don't know what that reference is either. But she's been studying yoga for years, and 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 you know, making a reference to Buddha leaving the palace is sort of like saying you know it's like when Christ fed the the multitudes. You know, it's such a it's such a basic uh, part of, of Buddhism that that you know you kind of expect everybody knows it who has any sort of connection with it, but um, but she didn't know. Um, <clears throat> So that's also another reason that I like to kind of get get the talk over with and get to the Q and A because I don't know if I'm if I'm saying things that are making any sense or not. So let me see. Um, the a couple things I can talk about in my sort of immediate experience of Buddhism, and and I don't know if it doesn't matter if you read my silly blog or not. Um, that Tricycle Magazine singled out as being one of the most contentious. Buddhist blogs <laughs> there are because people just like to go in the comment section and argue with each other. I moved it over to a different um, server just a couple weeks ago, and now there's a lot less arguing going on, which I don't, I don't know why that is. They haven't found you. They haven't found me yet. That could just be it. Yeah, but uh, but I wrote about this, and and I'll I'll just try to uh, say what I what I wrote, and it'll probably come out differently, even if even if you read what I wrote. Um, I wrote about this just this morning. I guess it was this morning, or maybe it was last night. Anyway, whatever. Um, I went and visited the Grand Canyon, which to people living in Arizona probably is like, oh, you, you went to the mall, or you know, it doesn't look dumb. I'd never been to the Grand Canyon before, um, so so it's really, uh, you know, it's a pretty amazing place, the Grand Canyon. Um, and I, you know, stood on the rim, and I and I thought. Because my my dad was talking about this, and he was, he was talking about this this uh, this person he knows who'd gone to the Grand Canyon, and she was so amazed, and you know, just talking about it, getting all excited. And I wasn't getting all that. I, I wasn't. My reaction to seeing the Grand Canyon wasn't um, wasn't like that. You know, uh, I thought it was uh, it was pretty uh, amazing, and and I, I was glad to to have gotten to see it. And it's beautiful. Um, but on the other hand, I wasn't I wasn't um, jumping up and down going ah, and I and I wondered. You know, part of this is is just my personality, which tends to be kind of low key anyway. But I think a lot of it has to do with the Buddhist 
practice I've done, which kind of gets you into the mindset of hello, of uh, of seeing everything that you encounter as being pretty amazing. So, so I'm kind of used to to the experience. And when it, and when that first started happening, um, in, you know, after I don't know seven or ten years of, of daily practice, that that. It, this happens to a lot of people. Your eyes sort of open up to the to the beauty that you you missed. You know that you've been just walking down the street, passing beautiful sight after beautiful sight all your life, and and just going, well, I got to get to the you know store or whatever. Um, and so we spend a lot of our lives kind of dividing life up into mundane things, which is which is like ninety eight percent of of what happens to you in life. And then things that are really, really exciting or really, really terrible, you know, which makes up about two two percent of your life, and then paying all of our attention to that that two percent and missing um, the rest. Uh, so, so I was just thinking about. Um, I thought the the Grand Canyon was really amazing, but I also thought the the mall this afternoon was pretty amazing in its own weird way, you know. So. So you you know you it 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 changes things and it might um, I was thinking that to to an outside observer to somebody who really doesn't know what's going on it might seem like everything for a person who's gone through this sort of meditational experience and gotten gotten to that you know level or whatever um, it's not a level but you know you got to get to that point in your practice it might seem like that person has become so jaded or dull or because I called I, I titled the article the Grand Canyon sucks mm-hmm. um, because I, I thought I thought if somebody were to see me and see my reaction to the Grand Canyon compared to the way a lot of people react to the Grand Canyon they would think oh this guy is just jaded and he doesn't care anymore you know but it's 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 actually um, the opposite it's 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 sort of like everything <laughs> looks to me like what like what the Grand Canyon would have looked like to me 20 or 25 years ago or whenever. Um, uh, and, and that, and, and, and when that first started to dawn on me, getting back to what I was trying to say, um, my reaction to that was slightly goofy, I think. And I think this happens to a lot of people who go through the practice for years. Um, you get a little goofy for a little while, where you're going, "Oh my God, this pen!" Ah, you know, whatever, you know, whatever it is, uh, and, and getting all excited, and people just think, "What? What is he taking?" Um, you know, to, to have that reaction, uh, and and you you you, I think it's a sort of a process of socialization, almost that you you learn to go, "Okay, well, I, I can't be like that <laughs> all the time, or people are going to think I'm I'm uh, out of my mind." Um, and, and so, so it kind of settles down, but but the 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 level of excitement, or I don't know if excitement is really the word for it, but it's the best one I can come up with on short notice, um, of of just um, being in the world and, and encountering things is is all like at a high level and 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 not much. I mean, there there are certain things that that rise up above that, um, but um, but for the most part, everything's at this kind of high level, and and it's really. <clears throat> It's really nice. So, um, so the Grand Canyon is good. <laughs> That's my uh, <laughs> my uh, review of the Grand Canyon. Um, but there's a lot of people there. Uh, I didn't, you know, I don't know why. I, I didn't really think about crowds of, of people pushing each other out of the way to get, get a look at the thing. Um, 
So that's that's one thing that's kind of been on my on my mind. Um, the the other thing was was to do with um, Zen practice itself and how uh, this is a kind of completely different thing, but it sort of came up um, with a friend of mine who's having a, uh, a rather difficult time in his life. Um, he's he's uh, hooked up with this girl, and the girl is uh, is an alcoholic, and he's trying to get her off. and 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 he's he was asking me for advice on on um, how to deal with this person, and I had to think about it for a long time before I was ready. Um, I ended up, rather than calling him, I decided to write him an email because it's easier for me to sort of get my thoughts down when I do that. Um, so I wrote it this afternoon, and um, I was thinking, how would I deal with a, a situation like that? And I thought about, um, I, I said to him, it, you know, how, how I would deal with a person like this if she came to me and wanted to be my Zen student. Um, and and my reaction to to somebody who's like deeply troubled like that, or well, well, to almost anybody, is is this thing I've learned from from my teachers and the way they kind of react, which is which is this sort of approach that is is kind of off putting. It's sort of famous <laughs> in Zen. A, a, a lot of people, when they encounter somebody who is who is practicing a religion or especially teaching a, a religion, and I don't know if Zen is a religion or not. But, I, I tend to I tend to fall on the side that says it's not a religion, but I've heard arguments that say it is a religion that I can agree with. So, um, but anyway, so, uh, but so people expect you to kind of sell you sell them on their religion. So this is this is a, a lot of what happens when people ask. Like the woman yesterday was asking me um, about Zen, and I think she um, halfway expected me to try to to sell her on the, the religion, but we really don't do that. So if somebody came to me who was really deeply uh, difficult with this, I was saying to, to this friend of mine, that, that my approach would be to kind of at first say, no, you can't. You can't be my student. Um, and, and this is giving a, a few secrets away uh, mm-hmm. of the game. But what I would really sort of hope um, is, is that, that she might be strong enough to push, push past that. Um, but the reason for doing that is I feel, and, and this, is all, this is a kind of personal thing, but I think it's also in, in, ingrained within the Zen tradition, that I can't help anybody who, who isn't at least willing to, um, to fight for it a little bit, you know, to say, I really, I really do sincerely need, uh, need this help, and I don't want you to you know, come and you know, coddle me, and, and I don't want to try to... Um, manipulate you into doing stuff for me and, and et cetera, et cetera, which often happens in these sort of relationships. So it, within, within the Zen tradition, there is that um, that happens where teachers are often um, uh, seen as trying to push, push people away. Uh, you know, in the old, the old um, traditional sort of story is the guy who comes to the Zen temple and wants to be admitted as a student, and they tell him, you know, get out of here. Um, and and most of them do. They just, you know, somebody goes, go away. They, oh, I'm sorry, and they go away. Um, and the people who actually end up getting admitted to the more traditional Zen centers, Zen temples in the old days, were the ones who would actually sit out there in the snow and the sun and the whatever else was there and and uh, demand to be to be let in. And we we do have that. Um, 
still even now in the, the Tangario. I don't know if you guys know about Tangario. Tangario is a tradition like at, at um, Tassajara. Is it five? Is it a week or is it five days? Five days. Five days, uh, five days of horrible, uh, horribleness, hazing they put you through. You know where they where they make you they they sit, you you're supposed to sit zazen for the entire you know it's not like forty minute periods or anything it's the entire five days you're just sitting there I think you're allowed to get up and go to the toilet and uh, um, but this is this is a kind of um, stylized uh, version of, of what what used to happen in the old days where people would just have to wait and uh, be admitted. Um, Good. Have I said enough to spark anything, or, or uh, I could go, I could go on even, even more. Um, I'm just throwing things out, by the way. So you know, anything. I've got a question. Yes. So, uh, stringing some ideas together about Buddhism, the religion, our religion, yeah. whatever that may be, and the idea of elevated sense of, you know, elevated perception. Things got everything being well. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on you know terms like enlightenment? Is it just a hypersensory perception, or is it something quite different? Yeah, enlightenment is a is one of those uh, weird words, and I've written a lot of stuff about um, enlightenment because um, it's it's one of these terms that's that I feel is really deeply misunderstood, especially uh, when it comes to Americans who practice. And, and, and anybody who's read my stuff already knows that I, I'm, I have a kind of a bug up my butt of, again, about a certain Zen teacher who's going around with this, with this see now you who know now, um, advertising this program that is supposed to get you an enlightenment experience within, uh, according to his literature, a few hours. So you're supposed to be able to go in, sit with this guy, do the special technique, uh, and you'll have an enlightenment experience in a couple of hours. And this is uh, supposedly the distillation of this, this great you know, uh, wisdom he has. And, he's and, and to me, that's not enlightenment. Um, there, there, are, um, there are things that, that happen to people who uh, do Zen practice, uh, probably... Uh, people who do other meditation practices as well, but I know Zen best, so that's the one I can talk about, um, that, that are kind of um, surprising uh, experiences. So you can, you can be going along in your life and you're doing your sitting every day, and one day um, you'll have uh, what, what often seems to be a very extraordinary experience, and people will, will write about these experiences and, and talk about them. Um, and, and to somebody who hasn't had that sort of experience, it seems um, like the goal of, of practice, and it seems like this is what practice is all about. Now, I was, I was having a talk with my first teacher, who's a guy named uh, Tim McCarthy, who's an American guy, was a student of Koben Chino Roshi. I don't know if anybody knows Koben um, and his stuff. But um, t- Tim was talking about his, a different teacher of his, I think it, I think he was talking about this guy named Reverend Thayer, another Buddhist teacher he knew. I think it was in Rinzai tradition. But uh, Tim said that when he was first practicing and first uh, studying Zen, he went up to, he asked um, Reverend Thayer, I'm going to say that's who it was, uh, what, um, what was the most difficult part of, of his job as a, as a teacher, as a Zen teacher. And he said the most difficult thing is uh, the most the 
the worst thing to deal with is uh, when students first become enlightened. That was the, the worst part of it. Um, because, and, and by that I think he was using enlightenment in more the, the Rinzai sense of having this kind of experience which, which opens up a lot of things, but which can also uh, leave a person a bit uh, dazzled by the experience. And, and oftentimes when people have this experience, the first thing they'll do, the first thing I did, um, is, is to feel like, oh my God, I got it, I got everything, hey, you know, look at me. Um, there's that, have you seen, there's a cartoon that's making the rounds on the internet that has these Buddhist monks sitting around and one of them is standing up going, hey, first to reach enlightenment, <laughs> eat my dust, bitches. <laughs> that's what's in the cartoon. Um, and and you and that's and, and and I don't know if the person who wrote that cartoon he's probably just being funny, but that's kind of what it's like, you know. Um, you'll you'll have that experience, and so so a lot of people, um, it's very easy to get kind of stuck there. So so enlightenment isn't isn't that it isn't isn't some experience um, that happens, and then after you've had that experience, then everything is is. Uh, is just enlightened, you know. Now I'm enlightened, you know. It's not like that. That uh, you know, the graduation you've, you've passed. Um, there, there's there's a lot more stuff that uh, that needs to be done. Uh, other than that, and the other stuff is, as actually, I would say, much more important. Um, but but there are there are things that happen, and and, um, and part of that is what I mentioned about this kind of uh, different sort of perception that happens, a different sort of of way of looking at at life um, that sort of happens. You know, a- a- after a certain time of doing this practice, I think this happens to pretty much everyone who's done it, you get, you get it's difficult to sort of describe, you get sort of spun around in, in your way of, of looking at things, and you start to go, it starts to dawn on you, either gradually or, or quickly, um, that the way you had conceived of your life up until that moment was completely wrong. <laughs> Um, and you might not get a grasp on what what completely right is right away, but but you'll be you'll be certain that that uh, that what you thought that how you characterized things and what you thought was going on was not what was going on at, at all. Um, and that'll change a person, and that and that um, that having a different sense of of how things are um, does kind of. Uh, Ends up isolating you a bit from from most people, um, you know, and 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 part of what happens with that isolation is is if you end up in as some of us end up doing um, being a teacher, uh, you you get I mean look at me I'm in this I'm in the middle of the room and everybody's looking at me and I'm and I'm talking about this stuff and so you have experiences like that. Um, <coughs> Which which uh, which is easy to misinterpret if you're on the other side because uh, which I know because I spent a lot of time to you on the other side of being sitting in the in the sitting on the cushion looking at the guy talking about this stuff and you you get the, the feeling that this this person has had something um, extraordinary or the person is extraordinary or there's something special but I really think it's not it's not that special it's What's 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 going on? I feel is that um, is that somehow, and I don't know how. Everybody has their own pet theories. Uh, a lot of us have gotten turned around to this wrong way of, of 
thinking about life. But since we're social animals, we we kind of feed off each other and, and teach each other and, and, and you know even when we're not trying to teach each other. And and so there there's become a a way of looking at, at things that is almost sort of almost universal. It crosses cultures and crosses everything. It probably goes way back into human history. And it's it's a it's mistaken. <laughs> um, but there are there are ways to kind of I think part one of the things I think is great about Zen practice is is there's no um, goal to it. So rather than trying to force a specific new way of looking at life on you, what this practice does is just makes you sit with everything that you have and just stay with it. And you're not you're not trying to do anything to it. You're just you're just seeing it for what it is. And if you sit there with it for long enough, um, the absurdity of it starts to become more and more clear um, to the point where, where and, and I don't know why it, it tends for most people to sort of snap. I, you know, I don't know. I, I remember talking to my, my teacher, uh, Nishijima Roshi, the, my, one, my other teacher. I've had sort of two major teachers in my life about that and, and he was just talking about how he doesn't know why but it always seems to kind of um, build up to a crescendo and then sort of break open all at once for, for most people but not for everybody a lot of people just sort of continue in a gradual sort of path but um, you know this this thing and enlightenment I think is is um, or what is called what is often called enlightenment is sort of our our actual natural way of of experiencing things, and and this other thing that we think of as normal um, isn't uh, our natural is an unnatural way that we've sort of forced upon ourselves through. Um, uh, my pet theory is is we have these huge brains, and um, you know compared to any other animal, it's why childbirth is so hard for human beings and and so easy for chimpanzees and things like that, um, because this huge head has to come out. Um, so we've got the humongous alien heads you know and and this brain is always trying to do something and it's our it's our big uh, survival tool you know so we've been taught um, for years to just just work this brain up and, and make it do all kinds of stuff and we, we overdo it uh, I think and I think we we've and, and I think this goes back probably hundreds of thousands of years of just overdoing it with our brains um, uh, to the point where the, the that thinking part of the mind is, has has taken uh, a much bigger role than it really needs to, um, and and so when you learn to kind of allow that, you know, part of what happens in Zen is you just allow all the uh, the chatter. I don't know how how you teach it, but uh, uh, I mean, one of the ways of, of teaching is just allow that chatter to just go, you know, and just don't pay attention, you know. And, and learn not to pay attention to that chatter that's going on in your head all the time, which which you think you must pay attention to. But but after a while, it dawns on you that you don't have to pay attention to that. It's like a bratty kid who's just making a lot of noise, and you don't have to pay attention to him because he's not saying anything interesting anyway. Um, I know I'm not most of the time. It's just, it's just okay, shut up. You know, um, is that a good answer? I don't know. <laughs> that was a long answer. I'm sorry. Can I make a comment? Or sure. Yeah. 
the the problem that I have is I have incorporated the idea of no real goal mm -hmm. into my entire life. So when you're in a job interview and they say, what, what do you want to be in five years? <laughs> you're like, I don't know. I, I go, I want to be doing something that I enjoy. And they don't like that answer yeah, because yeah. Um, it's not it's not goal-oriented. Mm -hmm. And I teach freshmen at the university and I teach a freshman seminar class, which is the how to be a student class. And I actually teach no goal. Mm -hmm. And it like freaks them out because <laughs> their entire life they have been programmed to have all these short-term, yeah. medium-term, and long-term yeah, yeah, yeah. goals. And I teach them have a direction. And well, yeah, this, well, I'm sorry. To no, me, no, please. This reminds me of this conversation I had because Nishi Moroshi, my, it, I already told you who it was. It doesn't matter. Um, I... Most of the time I was studying with him, I worked for this company called Tsuburai Productions, which is a film and television production company founded by Eiji Tsuburai, who invented Godzilla, which I thought was really neat. Um, but um, he, I remember the, the company was going through some really weird times. And one of the things that happened is that the particular office, the international division I worked in, had lost its its goals, had lost its sense of, of direction or anything. And I remember having this, this conversation because I was getting really frustrated because I cared a lot about this company and I really wanted to do a good job and I felt like I wasn't it wasn't even able to because of this. And and I was saying, you know, it's like we have no goals. And then I realized I'm talking to a Zen teacher and I said, you know, I I, said, I kind of stepped back and I said, well I know I know in Zen it's it's um it, it, it's the point of it is to have no goals, but I think in business you have to have a goal. I said this to him, and he he'd actually he'd been a businessman for a long time, and he said, "Yes, you're right. In business, you need to have a goal." And I thought, "Oh, that's interesting, coming from a Zen teacher." But you do, you know, it, it might it might be a different sort of goal if you're if you're kind of it might be more of direction might be a better word that's for it, and I think you can do that in business as well. You can you can say our our direction for this year is you know rather than saying our goal is. Um, but you do need to be so. So there's there's a kind of a, a funny thing because people, when they hear what Zen is about, will often. This is something I often, very often, have to talk about. Um, it seems like it happens every like three weeks. I get this question from somebody on the email or something, uh, where they they think that that the what Zen is is complacency. You know, is this is this like everything? You know, nothing's going to get better, so we just leave everything as it is. And it's like, no, that's not it. Um, you you still have a kind of a direction, and you still kind of are, are pointing the arrow. But it's like that that maybe some of you've heard this story uh, already. Cobencino, um, my teacher's my first teacher's teacher, was also an archer, uh, and the story goes that he was at Big Sur, and they'd set up these targets. There in Big Sur in California is those cliffs that overlook the ocean, right? And they'd set up these targets on the cliffs. And um, Coben was there as the master Zen archer, you know, so they all expected a great performance of, of him. And so he pulls this arrow back and, and, and he lets it fly, and it just goes right past the, the target and into the ocean. And Coben went, bullseye! <laughs> so... So that that's kind of the 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 Zen attitude towards towards direction is is you you do you do kind of aim for the thing and I think that's important important yeah. part of the process. Yeah. Um, but if you don't hit the target, 
you know, then, okay, then that's, that's the next step is I didn't hit that target. Now I've got to do something else. And I think that's actually a more efficient way of working than to go, oh, my God, I didn't hit the target. You know, that, I think that's what happens a lot of times in, in business and in other places is that people just end up, you know, tearing their hair out because they didn't reach the goal without going, okay, we didn't reach the goal, but here's, here's where the arrow landed. What can we do with that? And which I think would be a much, a much more efficient way of dealing with things. Can you share more about that isolated period you talked about? Like you said, you get to a place where you're isolated. Mm. Yeah, um, isolated is a... I'm trying to think of how it was, you know, how these things came down for me. I, I, I remember, this is, this is kind of, this is sort of a weird thing to share because it's, 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 it feels a little bit like... Um, sharing your sex stories or something, you know, it's very, it's sort of intimate, you know, um, but you've asked and I'll, I'll just say, um, there was, there was a point where things sort of started coming together for me like that in the practice where I just wanted to tell people about it because it's this sort of exciting thing that happened, this sort of interesting thing, amazing thing that happened. Um, and I realized I couldn't, um, the, the people weren't understanding what I was saying. You know, and and I and, and even when I was talking to people who, at the time, I believed would understand what I was talking about, um, didn't. Uh, and their response to me was kind of, kind of like what I said in a sort of joking way is to think Brad's gone crazy, you know, uh, which is what it must have looked like. So so there there came a time when I realized there's not too many people um, I can talk to. About this, uh, things were happening like, like in 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 work. I, I remember being in a meeting in a because I worked for uh, ten years in Tokyo and then five more years in, in in Los Angeles for a Japanese company. So I'd have these meetings in Japanese, and I'm trying to express things that are hard to express in English, and I'm trying to do it in a foreign language, and it's you know this probably came out like really weird. But I, I remember. Um, uh, it was one of these, uh, getting back to the goal and business question, it was one of these things where we hadn't, um, we hadn't, uh, things hadn't gone, I don't remember even the specifics, but things hadn't gone the way uh, we thought they were supposed to. And I ended up saying to my boss, you know, he said, well, why didn't things, uh, and I said, well, the situation, I said something like, the situation hadn't ripened yet, or something like that. It was a very zen way. But I was, try, I was trying to, I wasn't trying to be all zen on the guy. I was just saying, this is, this is how I perceive it. The, the situation had not, had, not, had not ripened to the point where what he thought should happen could have happened. Because, you know, people weren't in the right places and they hadn't understood. When, you know, and, and, this, and, and, he, and that made him mad. You know, it's like, kind of like what the experience you had the job interview. Um, he didn't want to hear an answer like that. And I had to learn, you know, as far as the isolation thing goes, I had to learn to stop giving answers like that. You know, to start um, to, to start saying things in a, in a way that, that, that made more sense uh, to people who hadn't done what, what, I, what I'd done. You know. Um, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't, so so it, it it gets a bit lonely, you know, um, and that's where that's where in my case I kind of really bonded with Nishijima Roshi because there there were times when I could go to his room and have conversations 
um, about stuff that um, that I realized that, that um, nobody else I knew uh, could understand, you know. But at the same time, just getting back to it, which were not, you know, um, special. We're not. We're not things that that made either of us any way superhuman or, or, or supernatural in any way. Just um, it's just that that if you let that cross chatter in your brain settle down to a certain point, um, other things start to become clear, and those other things are much bigger and more real than anything that cross-chatter in your brain can come up with. Because um, you start realizing that, that you, the, all that stuff in your head, just most of it's nonsense, you know. Including things that you had previously thought were incredibly important and incredibly vital and, um, and absolutely true. And you start to go, that's, that's nonsense too. That's just, that's just some you know, my friend calls them brain farts, you know, just things your brain just does, you know. Um, but it does it often enough that you think, oh, that must be, that must be the way things are. What are some examples of the things that are so, that you used to see as incredibly important? Uh, um, <clears throat> it's, it's hard to say. A lot of it has to do with... Um, I don't even like the word ego anymore because it's so overused and misused. But it, it had a lot of it had to do with with putting forth um, not images. Did you say images? Not images so much as as um, this is what I think. You know, uh, a, a lot of that just uh, fell by the wayside, and it didn't. It was no longer uh, important. I, I remember. I'll tell you one, one experience of this, and I, I don't know if this is a great one, but it's the one that comes to mind. Um, I was married. The marriage fell apart, but I was married at the time. And I was with my wife, and I was in, I was in a, a car, and we were having an argument. And I really wish, because it would, I've told this story other times, it would make the story so much better if I could remember what the argument was about, but I can't. Uh, but we were having an argument. Um, and we're going back and forth, and suddenly she said something, and at that moment I realized I had, I had the trump card there. You know, <laughs> she'd said she'd said just the thing uh, where I could counter with the with the with the response that would once and for all establish that I was right about whatever the thing was. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was right there. You know, it was like, have you seen Seinfeld, the episode where where he's uh, where somebody says uh, the ocean. He's eating a lot of shrimp, and somebody said the ocean called, and they're and they're running out of shrimp, mm-hmm. and he gets so mad because he can't think of a response, and then like two weeks later he thinks of the perfect response, so he keeps trying to recreate the situation again and again, you know, by going into meetings with huge buckets of shrimp, so that he can give this response, you know, which is the jerk store called, and they're running out of you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was one of those rare moments where I had, I had the perfect response you know you never come up with the perfect response right then in the middle of the argument it always happens much later and I and, and I've been doing a lot of Zen practice and at that moment it just occurred to me I could say that thing and it would it would go one way it would establish me being right but it would make her angry and sad and it would it would have all these other repercussions or i could just not say it uh and it was hard not to say it 
you know, it was difficult not to say it, but I, I chose the other way and said, I just, I, I didn't say it. I just let it go. Um, and a few minutes later, uh, the argument kind of settled out on its own. I, mean, I never, I never had to use my trump card, and everything worked out, and it worked out much better than it would have. And, it, and it's that's one class of things that 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 um, seems very, very important. Uh, and then after a while, you realize that those things aren't aren't important at all, you know, um, or just ways of 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 conceiving of the world that that seem to be absolutely true. You know, it's like, God, I don't even want to. Okay, I started it, so I'll have to go into it. It's, it. It came up last night. It's the it's the old "what happens after you die" question, you know, mm-hmm. that that happens anytime somebody. This happened with the woman who asked me about the Dalai Lama. Um, she's saying, "Well, what what do you what do you think happens after you die? Do we go after we die? Do we go to this and then and 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 I and part of what's going going on in the in the practice is to is to gradually see that that question, what happens to us after we die, makes no sense, you know? And everybody everybody thinks it makes sense, not everybody, you know, but most people seem to think that, and that's what a lot of religions are built on, is people thinking that that question makes sense. And after a while, you realize that question doesn't make sense. Um, that what happens after we die makes no sense, you know, and there's, there's a lot of Buddhist ways of saying, you know, for example, that we die all the time and all this other stuff. Um, but, um, but to see that that question makes no sense kind of frees you up in a lot of ways that, that, um, that are really incredible, you know, you, you, um, you don't, you don't have that, that sense that, um, that anything happened. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? What happens after? What happens after we get to, to Pittsburgh? You know, uh, you know, it's, it's 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 a question like that. You know, I don't even know if I'm going to Pittsburgh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it just becomes an absurd question. You know, and, it, and it's a bit. It, it feels like that, though. You know, these days when somebody asks me that, I think, well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> you know, what is what is the weight of, of Detroit? You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it it, uh, it 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 just you know. Uh, you know, I saw on YouTube. I think you got a shirt thing. I think you titled it "Is Is Zen Atheist" or something. Yeah. But, you know, and I think you know, theism is a God kind of separate and apart from mm-hmm. man that controls the universe. Okay, and made it. And and, and you said, no, I believe in God. Yeah. Now, is that God dependently originated and empty? <laughs> no, yes. Ah, ah. <laughs> uh, uh, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. It's one that I've been pondering a lot lately because I decided, the next book that I'm going to come out with is is some. It's going to be titled "There Is No God and He Is Your Creator," which is my <laughs> misunderstanding of something that Joshu Sasaki apparently had said, which is "There is no God and He is always with you." But for ye- I heard that uh, from Tim, who also studied with Joshu Sasaki Roshi, uh, when I was like eighteen or nineteen, and I misremembered that to use a, a, a George W. Bushism. I misremembered uh, the. Is that, is that what he said? Anyway. Um, uh, the quote, and so, but anyway, um, so I started thinking. I, I do. I if somebody says, "Do you believe in God?" Yes or no. My answer is usually yes. If I have to give a yes or no answer, um, and 
and it's funny because I've been I've been holding on to that or holding I've been kind of keeping with that response for years. And I, in, in writing the book, I had to think about, well, why, why do I insist on, on God? And there's a whole lot of reasons. Um, one, one of which just sort of dawned on me recently that I, that I feel like a lot of what's going on um, in Buddhism in America these days that I don't like has to do with, with, the, with the sort of atheism as atheism is understood by 21st century Americans. Um, combining itself with, with Buddhism, um, and and people people are trying to get away from God, and and this allows for things like um, that thing I was talking about with these seminars where people where the guy is saying you're going to get enlightened in in um, three hours or whatever it is he says. Uh, I think that can only happen if people. Uh, take God out of the equation because I think if you went to a, a bunch of Americans who's kind of been steeped in the Judeo-Christian tradition even if they didn't believe in it and said I've invented a new technique which you can spend three hours doing and you're going to see God I don't think I don't think you'd get very far with that pitch um, because we think of God as something you know much bigger if you say you're going to be enlightened in three hours, people don't know what enlightenment is, and they think it's a psychological state, and it makes you happy, um, and they can accept that you're going to have it in three hours. So I feel like I want to, in, in, in some ways, I want to reintroduce God back into the equation, because I think what we're going after in Buddhism is something much bigger. And I think God is the only word I can come up with that, that um, conveys the sense of just how, how big I think this this thing is so it's it's a little different from a dependently originated God who you know who created the universe or, or any of that um, I don't I don't believe that there was at you know a bazillion years ago there was some dude sitting around who went geez I'm kind of lonely and went Ping, and created you know all of us um, which is theism yeah yeah but but in in a sense I, I can't say I'm an atheist because I I I believe in God. I think there's something there's some there's something within the universe that is so big that it 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 deserves a big concept um, to cover it. But you know the problem the problem with God is it's it's sure. I, I kind of think that maybe the first few people who in within the you know originally the Jewish and later the Christian tradition who who started in the Islamic too I'm sure tradition who started using this word God were probably trying to describe something much different. You know, people anthropomorphize. You know, they hear that word God and they go, well, God, it must be like this and have the beard and you know, the robes and sit around. So, um, so I think that's a mistake, but I, I don't think it's a mistake to, to, to say that there's something much grander to, to all of this and that we can, and we have a kind of a, a connection and we are we are a manifestation. We're an expression of, of whatever this thing is. It's very embarrassing to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm going. I, I can go all night if you want, but I I yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I'll, I'll keep going. Yeah, you don't want me to go, but I can go as long as so you you tell me how long you want me to continue. Well, we're I'm, I'm sit happy to. Maybe for half an hour. So okay. from eight thirty to nine, we'll sit. So okay. we've got some more time. Okay. Could you say a little more about Zazen? Uh, sure. Um, 
Hmm, what can I say? That's <laughs> so open-ended. Yeah, well, that's um, the idea. Yeah. <laughs> zazen to me, I'll give you my, my take on Zazen, because um, I've been practicing it for, it's got to be going on 30 years, or close to 30 years now, which is because I started young, and I'm, I'm older than I look. <laughs> that's a lot of people assume I'm younger than I am, and they hear you started with you. Three years. You must have started when you were two. No, no. I don't know if I look that young, but anyway. Um, but um, so, so I've been doing it for a long time. This is something that, that uh, Greg Fain, who's the, the, the practice leader at Tassahara, said to me, and I, I think it's a great phrase. He said, "The longer, the longer I practice zazen, uh, the more difficult it gets to answer the question, why do you do zazen?" <laughs> Because these days, I don't even know, I don't even ever think in terms, except uh, unless somebody asks me to give it in terms. I don't think about why I do it. I get up in the morning, and that's the, you know, pretty much the first thing I do. I go and put, put, plop my ass on a cushion and, and stare at the wall for over half an hour or 40 minutes, you know. And I've been doing that almost every day for, for most of my life. Um, and I don't, I don't think so much about why I do it. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's an interesting practice in that um, one of the things, when I teach it, I often emphasize, and this makes pe- some people mad sometimes, is I, I, also, I think it's, a, it's very much a, a physical practice. A, a lot of times when people approach meditation, meditation is conceived of as something you do with your mind, and a lot of people who are new to the practice um, look at it and go. Well, why do you have to sit like that? Because you can just do like that and, and have and and have the great and and it's not like that. It's it's a it's a it's a physical practice, and the physical practice is is uh, is, is is an essential part of what you're doing. You know, and, and of course, if you have some sort of a disability or something, you can modify uh, the practice uh, to suit it. It's better to do a modified practice than to to not do it at all. Um, but on the other hand, I, I I don't know. I've had arguments with my friend Tonin O'Connor about this, who sees things differently, maybe because she speaks to a different crowd of people. But my experience is running into a lot of people who can do the physical part of zazen, but just don't want to, you know. And so I tend to be a kind of a hard ass about about you know physical posture and you should do it the right way um, and sit on a cushion and then all of this stuff. And then people go, "What if you're a paraplegic?" And I'm going, "Well, if you're a paraplegic." You can ask me that question. If you're not a paraplegic, <laughs> sit on the cushion and, and, and you know, sit straight up. You know, and if you're a paraplegic, then I, I, can, I can talk to you and we can figure out a way. You know, that that uh, you might be able to to approximate it and and, and do it um, in a different way. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of people are worried about these these um, what to me sound like just hypothetical you know, situations that don't really apply to their lives. Um, so I think it's it's also physical practice, and and also there's that um, I'm a real believer in uh, shikantaza, which is the uh, just sitting practice, you know, which is which is a goalless practice where you you sit without any um, goal. Although you might have an aim, you know, if you want to get into that, and and that's a funny thing because. Because sometimes you know people will take that in all different ways, and one of the ways people commonly take that is go is they go, oh my god, I'm have a goal, I'm doing it wrong. And the thing is, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the, the thing about it is, is you you can have, even though I'm saying it's goalless, you can have a goal, 
it just doesn't you 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 learn to just not worry about it you know i i might want to get enlightened you know i might want to experience anuttara samyak sambodhi you know that i read about in a book you know unsurpassed complete perfect enlightenment um and so i'm sitting there for that and and that's okay but but uh, a, a part of the practice is to leave that aside because you don't know what unsurpassed perfect complete enlightenment is um and if you if you have a goal for your practice, you the best you you can hope is to attain that goal. The problem with having a goal in your practice is that you 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 have presumably presumably come to this practice because you realize there's something wrong. You know that there's some 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 something's going on. You know most people. Hardly anybody ever comes to Zen because they they think everything is clinky dory, and I just want to come 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 and sit. You know, mostly mostly it's people who have reached a, a kind of a crisis point. You know, it, for me it was definitely um, a, a crisis point in my life. You know, and I could tell you all about the specifics of it, but it doesn't really matter. Um, I, I I realized. Um, at like 18 years old or whatever I was, that something had to something had to be done, you know. And I really had to I had to had to um, work on something, you know. Had to get get through this thing. So it was a crisis point. Um, so most people have that. Um, God, I started going into that. Now I don't remember where I was. Um, so you you have, I guess what I'm saying is you have so you have something you want to you want to fix. Um, and any sort of any sort of vision or idea of of the goal that you hope to attain, no matter how beautiful it might seem, is the product of that wrong thinking or whatever it is that you're you're trying to work on. So so this this view, this idea of what enlightenment must be, is a fantasy spun out by uh, a collection of the same problems that are that are that are what's what's in your way in the first place. So really, if you have a goal of enlightenment, the best thing you can do is is to is to drop it because because what you're going for it is is exactly where you don't want to be anyway. Um, no matter how beautiful it looks, you don't want to go there. Um, so so you're left with. Just sitting and um, being goalless, and and that I wish I could. I, you know, this is something I've tried to put in words several times. I was at this um, this thing called the Great Great Sky uh, Sashin, uh, and um, well, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Uh, begins with a D, and he's in Minnesota. I wish I, I just wish I could give him credit, um, but I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Dosho. Not Dosho. Um, the Dosho is a D, and he is in Minnesota. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, um, yeah, which what happens when you get old. Um, <laughs> but he he was talking. He was giving his talk about about um, practice and something that he said sparked something where I kind of I kind of got something I hadn't got before which is that this idea of goalless practice isn't um, isn't such a big thing 
um, isn't isn't that you isn't um, it was he was talking about it in terms of no preferences, which to me is is kind of the same thing, phrased a different way. And there's this idea of not having preferences. Um, it's in the Shinjin Mei, you know, that the way, the great way is not difficult, just avoid picking and choosing or just avoid having preferences. It's sort of a famous Zen quote that a lot of people like to quote. And when I first um, heard that, I had thought of preferences in terms of I prefer, um, I generally prefer fruit flavored ice cream to candy flavored ice cream. You know, ice cream kind of comes in two basic varieties. There's the candy flavor, like peppermint or chocolate or things, and then there's the fruit flavor, like strawberry or you know, apple. Flavor. And I thought preferences were those kind of things. You know, I prefer this to that. I, I prefer um, um, sitting on this cushion to getting a, a sharp stick in my eye. You know, that kind of thing. You know, you have a lot of preferences. Everybody has them. And I thought, I thought when when that phrase came up, I thought, well, you know, there's these fixed things in my personality in my makeup that are called preferences, and I must find a way to eradicate those preferences. Um, and, and something about what this, this uh, teacher had said, whose name I'll think of probably at the very end of the lecture, um, uh, made me see that, that it, was, it wasn't that these big preferences, it was just sitting here, for example, in this moment going, God damn it, I wish it was you know, I wish 30 minutes had passed by now so I could get up and have breakfast, which is, which is often my thought during, because I tend to do my, my main sitting before breakfast, you know, and sometimes I'm, like, really hungry, and I want my damn bowl of Cheerios, and I don't want to wait 30 minutes for that, those Cheerios, you know. Um, <clears throat> so in, at that moment, um, it's, it's not a big thing. It's just, to, it's just to say, okay, I have that preference, and now I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let it be, and I don't have to attend to it. I don't have to. Um, I've just decided I'm gonna sit for thirty minutes, and I'm gonna sit for thirty minutes, and um, and that's all there is to it. Uh, and and it's not such a big thing. It's just in this immediate moment, and it happens over and over and over during the course of any given you know time of of practicing. There is there these things keep coming up, you know. I wish I wasn't here, you know. I wish I didn't have that thought, um, you know. All all kinds of things. Uh, I wish I could stop thinking, you know. Uh, I wish this this chatter would shut up. Uh, whatever it is, those are preferences, and and you just let them let them drop, you know. Including the one that says, "I wish I would stop thinking all these things," or "I wish I would stop having all these preferences." You, you let that one drop too. You let everything drop, and 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 something Tim had said to me because I've been sitting with him. So I moved back to Ohio for about a year and, and a few months, and I started reconnecting with my first teacher again. And he said um, something to the effect of, "People think that the goal of having no goal is a goal." Um, and if you if you think of it if you think of it linguistically, you can make that work out as a as a certain you know as a chain of logic, and you say the goal of having no goal is also a goal. But in the midst of actually sitting, having no goal is not a goal. It's something else, um, and that something else can only be called having no goal. And if you want to insist that linguistically speaking, it it stacks up that way to having a goal. 
Um, you can, but if when you actually experience it, it's something different. It's it's the process of continuously dropping this this wanting to be somewhere else, wanting to not do this, wanting wanting the <coughs> practice to be better. You know, that's a, that's one everybody has. You know, you sit there thinking, Jesus Christ, I'm not. You know, this is this is definitely a waste of time because <laughs> see, everybody's had this, right? Who's done this practice? You know, I'm. T- know what I'm doing here. <laughs> Who are all these people? Which <laughs> they go away. You know, it's just like you're just hating it, you know. Um, and 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 you can you can have that. You just but you just you know you just don't don't wish for anything else. You just say, okay, I have that. You know, I hate. There was there was some there was a little. Uh, I was in. Um, it's now sadly <clears throat> gone. Although it was never all that it was. It could have been, but it was still a nice place. There's a place called the Bodhi Tree Bookstore in Los Angeles that used to go. And now they're out of business, and that makes me mad. Um, but there was a great, great Buddhist bookstore, you know, um, or supposedly Buddhist bookstore. Uh, and I was in there, and I, I overheard this conversation between two people. One was uh, a guy who'd been Joshu Sasaki Roshi's translator, and this other woman who was very impressed to meet him because that meant he knew, he at least knew somebody who knew Leonard Cohen. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, that's how. That's how. Yeah, yeah, it's marked by being Leonard Cohen's yeah. buddy. But um, but she's asking. She said, "I read in this po- book of poems. You know, she's at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, so obviously she has some kind of connection with Buddhism, but not not much, obviously. Because she she said, I read this book of poems by Joshi Sasaki, and there was a line in it that some something like sitting on the cushion, hating the person sitting next to me." You know, and what could he really be hating the person who was sitting next to him while he was doing this meditation? And the guy who was Joshi Sasaki's translator said, you, "You've never done zazen before, have you?" <laughs> 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 I thought that was a great answer. You know. All right, that's what I said back in the summer of 2012 to the people of Phoenix, Arizona. And if you like this podcast and want to donate, you can go to Hardcore Zen dot info slash donate that is hardcore zen dot info slash donate and you will find links to my paypal and patreon accounts there those are my main means of support and i really appreciate your donations but as always this is offered for free so you don't gotta donate if you don't want to donate we will see you next time have a good time all the time bye